Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For more than a decade, the idea that you can persuade rather than compel behavioral change has been in vogue. But a new study suggests that nudge theory isn't all it's cracked up to be. And the Middle East is no stranger to high temperatures and low rainfall. There's not much to be done about the heat, but to shelter in air conditioning. But authorities think they can do something about the rain. Whether it will work is far from clear. First up, though. Please help me welcome Liz Cheney. In Wyoming last night, a race for the Republican nomination to the state's only seat in the House of Representatives. Liz Cheney, who'd held the post for five years, lost by a lot. Tonight, Harriet Hageman has received the most votes in this primary. She won. I called her to concede the race. This primary election is over, but now the real work begins. As chair of the House Republican Conference, Ms. Cheney was once the third most important Republican in the House. But the events of January the 6th radically changed her view on Donald Trump, whom she's lambasted ever since, even becoming vice chair of the committee investigating the Capitol riot. I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Ms. Cheney was toppled by a former member of her own staff, Harriet Hageman, who, no coincidence here, was endorsed by Mr. Trump. We can dislodge entrenched politicians who believe they've risen above the people they are supposed to represent and serve. Once again, Mr. Trump has exerted his influence, revealing who many of the party faithful are faithful to. I spoke with Aaron Braun, our Mountain West correspondent, and Idris Kaloon, our Washington bureau chief, about Ms. Cheney's defeat and why it's probably not the end of her political story. Liz Cheney's election night party was just north of Jackson, Wyoming, in this big valley, very close to Grand Teton National Park. And it was at a ranch. There were horses around. There was big tents. There was lots of people in cowboy hats. And I think the mood was pretty jolly, actually. The people who were gathered there didn't appear to be that sad when Cheney conceded, I think, because they didn't expect that she was going to win. 
And uh, a lot of them didn't think that this was Liz Cheney's last stand. Um, They seemed to hold out some hope that she would be back um, in the future. Not her last rodeo, as it were. So when did it become clear that she wasn't, in fact, going to win? I think it was kind of clear she wasn't going to win even before any of the results were announced. The polling that had been coming out from Wyoming had been fairly miserable. It showed her losing by almost 30 points. And in fact, the actual election night result is still being finalized, but she might have lost by closer to 40 points. It would have been even worse had she not embarked on this campaign to try to convince Democrats to change their party registration to vote as Republicans. So I don't think anyone was surprised to hear that she had lost. I think it's important to say that if your election strategy in Wyoming is to try to convince Democrats to vote for you, that's already sort of a Hail Mary. 70% of Wyomingites voted for Donald Trump in 2020. So there are very few Democrats in Wyoming to begin with. Let's wind back a bit. How did Liz Cheney end up in this position of of needing to appeal to to Democrats for a, a Republican primary? Well, Liz Cheney has a famous last name. She's the daughter of Dick Cheney, who was, before he was vice president, was also Wyoming's only congressman for about 10 years. He's very well known. Her name is very well known in the state. And when she was elected only about six years ago, she very rapidly became someone who uh, Republicans thought of as the future of the party. By the start of 2021, she had ascended to being the number three Republican in the House of Representatives. But all of that changed when January 6th happened. She went from someone who had voted with the president 93% of the time to someone who was so disgusted with the president's actions around the attack on the Capitol that she voted not only to impeach him, but also has been helping to lead the January 6th committee, which has been investigating uh, the president's actions throughout. So more than any of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump She has been the most vocal and, I think, among Republicans, the most hated as a result of that. And it got to such a point that her approval ratings are completely upside down. Uh, Among Democrats, her net approval rating is plus 40 points. And among Republicans, her net approval rating is minus 52 points. So that's the exact opposite of what you would expect from someone whose last name is Cheney and who was previously a top leader of the Republican Party. And what about Ms. Cheney herself? What did, what did she say about the, the loss? One of the strongest themes of her speech was just fighting back against this election denialism. And she referenced Mr. Trump, but also secretaries of state and governors who have adopted his big lie. It has been said that the long arc of history bends toward justice and freedom. That's true, but only if we make it bend. Today, our highest duty is to bend the arc of history, to preserve our nation and its blessings, to ensure that freedom will not perish, to protect the very foundations of this constitutional republic. But then also she flat out said that she was willing to do basically whatever it took to prevent Donald Trump from coming anywhere near the Oval Office again. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. And I think that could mean a few different things, but there has been speculation because of the millions of dollars that she still has in 
unspent campaign money that she herself might be mulling a 2024 presidential run. So conspicuously absent from the discussion so far is is who Ms. Cheney was running against. Who was her opponent? Liz Cheney's opponent was Harriet Hageman. She's a lawyer based in Cheyenne who has focused mostly on fighting federal environmental regulations. And she's very proud of that work. She touts it at all of her rallies. But more than that, I think she became this very loyal soldier to Donald Trump. And when they appeared together at a rally in Casper back in May, both of them kind of talked more about the January 6th commission and culture war topics like critical race theory and trans kids in women's sports and things like that than things really to do with Wyoming. Um, I think part of the reason Hageman has been missing from this conversation, most write-ups of this race, is that she's a proxy for this battle between Donald Trump and Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney said explicitly in her speech that she won her last primary by a lot if she had basically done what a lot of our other colleagues had done and not said anything she probably would have won this primary with just as high a margin and not been beaten by this amount. So Hageman positioned herself early on as the most loyal Trump supporter. Um, she got his endorsement and a vote for her was less a vote for her than it was a vote against Cheney and for Trump. And I, I think that's the case in a lot of these Republican primaries that we're seeing around the country. It's less about the actual person that Trump endorses and more about his endorsement in general. And so this is just another straightforward example of uh, not being aligned with Donald Trump spells political doom. Yeah, there are some exceptions. But if you look at, for example, the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, four of them announced their retirement rather than go through another primary. Four of them have now lost their primaries and only two remain who still have to face a general election. So just on that metric alone, you can see how effective the attrition has been. And if you look across the primaries overall, what we've seen is that Trump's endorsement record has been incredibly powerful. Among people who are running for open seats, Trump's endorsement picks have gone on to win about 80% of the time. Republican candidates seek his endorsement, and if they don't get it, a lot of them refrain from criticizing him, with the exception of Liz Cheney. But that that being the case, and uh, once again, this example of the, the stranglehold that Mr. Trump seems to have on the party, what would be the point of Ms. Cheney putting together a run in the face of all that? I think she answered that kind of outright in her concession speech. It seems like in her view, were she to run for president, it would be for the express purpose of denying Mr. Trump another chance at the Oval Office. And whether that means trying to compete in the Republican primary against him, which would probably be futile, or running as an independent to try to siphon off his votes, I'm not sure. And it sounds like she's probably not sure yet either. I think Cheney conceives of herself as a taking a, a stand that's important for history. In her speech, she compared herself to Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses Grant, two men who didn't relent under extreme pressure and who saved the Union. Lincoln and Grant and all who fought in our nation's tragic civil war, including my own great-great-grandfathers, saved our Union. Their courage saved freedom. And if we listen closely, they are speaking to us down the generations. We must not idly squander 
what so many have fought and died for. And I think that she sees herself as staking out this lonely ground that's important in and of itself, even if it doesn't yield the result that she wants. And right now, given where the party is and where it's going and what it's going to look like after November, it's hard to see a a reformation of the kind that Cheney wants. And so the only thing that we can conclude at this point is that Mr. Trump's path back to the presidency looks largely unobstructed then. I mean, basically, two years out from the presidential election, I think there's very little we know about what that race is going to look like. We are assuming that Joe Biden is going to run again, but maybe the Democratic nominee will be Kamala Harris. Maybe it will be someone else, and that will completely change the race as well. Among the the small number of Republicans who want to take such principled stands, the Liz Cheney example is a pretty discouraging one, isn't it? It, it doesn't a loss on this scale only sort of solidify that that force? It does. A lot of Republicans who do hold office actually loathe Donald Trump, but are too afraid to say so publicly. And an example like this, I think, encourages their silence even more. I think that's the most important point and the sad takeaway from Liz Cheney's demise is we've seen over the past few years the kind of never-Trump cohort of Republicans shrink. And this primary result will do nothing to reverse that. Aaron, Idris, thank you both very much for your time. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jason. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Governments have long struggled with a thorny question, how to influence people's behavior. In the pandemic, they wanted people to get vaccinated and stay indoors. In ordinary times, they might want to encourage people to exercise more or drink less. They could, of course, always use the law and make whatever behavior they want to change illegal. But that heavy-handed approach isn't always appropriate. Recently, a popular choice has been nudging a little psychological push in the right direction. But there are now new questions about just how effective these nudges really are. So nudge theory, the idea that you can softly finesse a person's decision-making, has been really popular for over a decade now. David Adam writes about science for The Economist. But a recent study and some even more recent criticism of that study, I've sort of highlighted and underlined that we might not actually know how effective it is when it comes to influencing people's decision-making. So before we talk about that study, let's take a little step back. Remind us, what is nudge theory? So nudge is a theory that has been very popular since a book came out in 2008 called Nudge Theory, and that was by the economist Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, a legal scholar, And this really sort of took a concept from 
the social sciences into the mainstream. Essentially, it's a concept that you can influence people's behavior by subtly tweaking the environment in which they make decisions. You sort of try and get people to make the right choices through offering them a series of options, psychological strategies that present the information in a different way. As Thaler and Sunstein very famously put it in the book, if you're trying to encourage healthy eating, putting fruit at eye level in a supermarket counts as a nudge, but banning junk food does not. And why have there been questions about nudge theory's effectiveness? So what sort of focused the criticism at the moment is that towards the end of last year, a group of psychologists at the University of Geneva published an academic paper, and they did what's called a meta-analysis. They didn't do any research themselves with nudge theory. They just looked at all the other studies on nudge theory that had been published, and they pulled the results. And they showed that when they pulled the results of these 200-odd nudge studies, they concluded that not only did nudges work overall, but they did so impressively. Now, to understand the criticism, you have to understand a little bit about the measurements that they use. So behavioural scientists can judge effect size with a measure called Cohen's D. Essentially, it's the difference between an average score in, in a control group and the average score in the group at which you are trying to intervene and make something happen. A score of zero basically means that the nudge has made no difference at all. Anything over 0.8 is considered to be a very large effect indeed, the sort of thing that would get policymakers very excited. Now, when the Geneva team looked at these 200 studies and averaged out all the nudges, they found an overall effect size of 0.43. Now, that isn't 0.8, but it's firmly in what people think of as the medium-sized category. Essentially, it kind of works most of the time with most people and it's significant and it can have an impact. And, and that's the kind of thing that makes policymakers sit up and take notice. That sounds to me like a resounding win for nudge theory. Why the criticism? So as happens in academia, once this paper was published, people saw it. They were able to run their own analyses on the data which the paper had presented and basically disagreed. And three separate academic groups, they all published critiques, which kind of made the same two points about the Swiss team's analysis. The first one was that these academic studies might all be nudges, but those nudges are so different. They're in such different fields and they try and do such different things that it doesn't really make sense to bundle them together into the same meta-analysis. And the problem there is that of these 200 nudges, some of them work really well, a lot don't have any impact, and when you average out the scores, you sort of lose that nuance and you just get an average score, which both sort of grossly exaggerates the impact of those that are useless and underestimates the benefits of those that work. And secondly, they made the point that because these are academic published studies, research in this field is subject to something called publication bias, which crudely is that journals are more likely to publish positive results or results that make people go, wow, that's interesting. And in fact, scientists are more likely to submit that kind of work to be published. So essentially what we're seeing is a skewed sample of studies because a lot of the studies that show small effects either aren't submitted at all or certainly aren't published by the journals. So what is the solution here? What might work? So I think there are sort of two ways of addressing that. One is if you're interested in nudge theory, 
look at the particular studies in the field that you're interested in trying to act. So if you're interested in trying to improve people's diet, for example, don't look at nudge studies which try and incentivize people to have a vaccine. And in terms of what we, what we can do to minimize the problem in academia, there are certain efforts underway to try and reduce publication bias. Because if journals only ever publish studies that show positive results, we're going to miss a large chunk of evidence that shows us that nudges don't work. And of course, knowing when it hasn't been effective can be just as important as knowing when it is. So it's important to publish negative results. But it's something which, not just this field, a lot of research in science and social sciences struggles with. Now, there are efforts that there are these things called pre-registration. So if, say, you, you say to the journal, we're going to do this study on a nudge, the results are going to be ready in a year. And the journal says, OK, we will publish those, whether they are positive and exciting findings, or whether you just find that it didn't work. But take up of those schemes is a bit patchy. So dare we say it, it might be time for a nudge. It might indeed. David, thanks so much for stopping by. No, you're welcome. Thank you. It's been a summer of heat waves for Britain and Europe, but in the Middle East, temperatures regularly exceed 40 degrees Celsius or 104 Fahrenheit. First to the Middle East, and it continues to be a very hot picture, certainly up in the north. Of course, cities such as Dubai in the United Arab Emirates have been built to withstand the heat. Air conditioning necessarily comes as standard. But the government isn't content with just controlling the indoor climate also wants to tell nature what to do with some possibly questionable methods. The UAE is one of the driest countries in the world. It gets only about 100 millimeters or so, four inches worth of rain every year. You have maybe 20 days a year where rain comes down. It's usually quite brief. Greg Karlstrom is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. But it's also a very humid country. It's on the water. There are clouds in the air, which puts it in a position to benefit from human intervention. And so in the hope of generating more rain, the UAE has been engaged for years now in a large-scale cloud seeding project. Let's wind back a little bit here. How does cloud seeding work? The real question is whether it works at all. But in theory, the way it works is typically by inserting chemicals into clouds. When this was first started, Almost a century ago now, planes would fly up and dump dry ice into clouds. These days, they use typically salts, things like silver iodide and other chemicals. And the idea is that these chemicals go into the cloud, they attract water droplets, they draw them together, and then the droplets become heavy enough that they fall to earth and you have rain. It's used throughout the world. In Southeast Asia, during the hazy season in the summer, Planes will go up and seed clouds, hoping to form rain that will make the haze go away. In parts of the American West, it's used on ski slopes. They will attempt to induce snow in the winter months by using cloud seeding. China even used it before the Summer Olympics in 2008. The idea was they didn't want rain to spoil the festivities in Beijing, particularly the opening and closing ceremonies. And so if they spotted clouds in the distance, planes would go up and seed these clouds and try to make them rain before they got to the city so that they wouldn't rain on the parade, so to speak. All that use around the world, and you're telling me the actual question here is, does it work? There have been decades of studies about cloud seeding, and the results usually come back inconclusive. There was a study about a year ago that was partly funded by America's National Science Foundation, which found that it can boost snowfall if you have the right atmospheric conditions. But there have also been other studies in America, studies in Israel and plenty of other countries 
that have come back with inconclusive findings. So no one is quite sure, but the UAE has still invested quite a lot in this. They run about 200 missions a year from an airfield in Abu Dhabi, the capital. Planes go up, they dump chemicals into the clouds. And lately, it's also been testing its own methods for cloud seeding. And what methods are those? The idea is to use electricity rather than chemicals. And so there are these drones that go up into the clouds and emit an electric charge in the cloud. And the idea is that they do much the same as the chemicals. This shock will cause the water droplets to clump together and they will fall to earth. And so it will work the same way, but it won't require injecting chemicals, which of course costs money. And there are still various questions around the environmental or health impact of doing chemical cloud seeding. Whether it works or not, we're not sure yet. They only started using it last year. And so in the meantime, it is still using the traditional methods like silver iodide, but they're keen to do more research on this and find out if it works. So why is the government going to this trouble to develop something even more questionable, shall we say, than the standard way of doing it? There are about 10 million people who live in the UAE. There are projections that the population will continue to grow in the coming years. And there's just not enough natural water for all of these people. You get the occasional brief storm in the winter, in the summer months, you'll have a storm that pops up for a few minutes. But this doesn't provide much in the way of renewable water sources. And so most of the water that's consumed in the UAE actually comes from the sea. It's one of the largest producers of desalinated water in the world. The government says about 14% actually of all of the desalinated water produced anywhere on earth is produced in the UAE. And so everything that everyone drinks that you use to shower, to wash your clothes, it all comes from the sea. The government would like to have other sources of water. And so the hope is that cloud seeding will provide a bit more of that. And I suppose in an era of increasingly rampant climate change, this is going to be an even more desperate affair. It may or it may not. There's actually some talk here when you speak to scientists and researchers that climate change may produce more rain in countries like the UAE. We saw this over the winter, over the New Year's Eve holiday weekend, when about a year's worth of rain fell in just three days. There was very heavy rain in some parts of the country. And then we've seen it again over the summer. There was a freak storm in July, which hit hardest in Fujero, which is on the east coast of the UAE caused flash flooding that washed away cars that inundated people's houses. Seven people were killed. Very unusual for any time, but especially for this time of year. And there is a belief among some scientists and meteorologists here that climate change may have played a role in the heavy rain that we've seen this year. But even if climate change does mean more precipitation in the UAE, it's hardly going to be enough to meet the needs of 10 million people and counting. Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcast@economist.com, And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. 
EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.